0: You know, when I began uh, pursuing my doctoral work, I was a bit terrified of my advisor for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, his name's Herman Zelderhaus. Someday, hopefully, he'll preach at our church. But one of the re- many reasons was if you look at Herman's publication record, you would assume he doesn't do anything but write books on Reformation theology. He pretty much is like publishes a book a month or edits a book a month. He's kind of a powerhouse, which is a very Dutch thing to do, be very, very, very productive in life. The other reason I was a little bit nervous about him is he like leads so many theological institutions, like Reformation 500 or the European Academy of Religion or the school that I'm a student at, Appledorn. At the time, he was uh, what's called uh, the rector of Appledorn. And the other reason, and probably the most significant reason, is the TV show Ted Lasso lied to me about what Dutch people are like. So you know the Dutch character in Ted Lasso is like really cool and aloof and does not understand social cues at all. So I was really nervous to apply to be under this advisor. But then I met Herman, and all of my fears evaporated almost instantaneously. Because Herman is like the jolliest, nicest guy you've ever met. And I don't know how he is so productive and yet so people-oriented at the same time. Herman became a Christian later in life, which isn't a common thing in the Netherlands. He became a Christian in his later teen years and then felt a call to ministry. He wanted to be the president of the United States, but when he figured out you had to be uh, a natural-born citizen, he couldn't realize he couldn't do that. So he said, I guess I'll be a theologian instead. He has six children, which is very uncommon in the Netherlands, and nine grandchildren. He was a pastor for 10 years before he ever wrote his dissertation, and he actually preaches every single Sunday. He's kind of like a bishop in the Netherlands. He goes to churches who don't have a pastor and preaches. Normally, when we talk to one another, he spends more time asking me how the church is, asking me how all you are, asking me how my wife and children are, talking about Liverpool Football Club, because he is a lifelong Liverpool fan, and I've become one over the years. In fact, the first person to tell me the terrible news that our beloved Jurgen Klopp was moving on was Herman, and I've been in a funk ever since. Jurgen Klopp is our coach, by the way, who's an amazing man. But maybe another time I'll, I'll use him as a sermon illustration. But back to Herman. And then he taught me that Dutch people are actually like the nicest people in the world. They're so generous, so nice. I, did, I met a couple of mean Dutch people, but you meet mean people everywhere you go. On the whole, Dutch people are crazy nice. And you know, I wonder, I thought of Herman fundamentally as a theologian. But then when I met him, I met him as a Christian and as a pastor first, and as a theologian is what he does for a living. And I kind of wonder if we treat Paul the same way. When we pick up the letter to the Romans, we often see it as a theological treatise, We're nervous to read it because we look at Paul and we say he stands head and shoulders above all of the other writers of both the Old and New Testament in terms of the way that he pierces into heaven and shows us the glory of Jesus. You know, maybe Moses or Isaiah in the Old Testament has a glimpse of this, especially Isaiah. In Isaiah 40, my favorite chapter of the Bible, where you see the beauty and majesty and glory and expansiveness of who God is. Maybe John In the New Testament, for his poetic nature of how he shows the beauty of Christ Jesus in his letters and in his gospel and in the book of Revelation. But we can all admit, if we really want to understand clearly what the scripture teaches on most topics, where do we go? We go to Paul. And so we view him fundamentally as a theologian. But you know who he was? He was a missionary pastor. All of the letters that we have are set in the context of churches that he cares for. People he, he is seeking to evangelize and people he is seeking to pastor. And so today as we continue in our sermon series through the book of Romans, I want to look at Romans 1, 8 through 15, where we see the pastoral address of Paul to the church of Rome. Now today's sermon might feel a little bit different because we probably aren't gonna dive into any one doctrine today. We're gonna look at Paul as a pastor and how we can see Paul as an example to us of how we are called to pastor one another. Because we do believe in the priesthood of all believers. What that actually means for the reformers is not that there's no such thing as spiritual authority. That's how that phrase gets abused. What it actually means is that we all have direct access to the Father. You don't need a... We have direct access to the Father through our great high priest. But it also helps us remember that we are all called to the ministry. All of us are called to be ministers of the gospel to a lost world and to one another, And so we can look at how Paul ministered and ask ourselves the question, how can this inform how we are called to minister to each other? So I wanna look at three things. First, Paul celebrates the health of the Roman church, and then he dives in the deep end with them. And I wanna look at how moving towards health as a church is central and significant for us to actually get to deep maturity in the faith. Second... Paul builds pastoral trust with the Church of Rome. We often think we can jump right into ministering to each other, but skip the sociological phenomenon of actually building intimacy and trust. You have to do groundwork before you can actually have access to one another to do deep and meaningful ministry. Think about it like this. Those of you that are rocking babies... In the nursery, if you remain in those children's lives when they're asking the deep questions in their teenage years and often to college, you will have a voice in their life. So how do we build a voice in one another's life? And Paul shows us three key ways. And then third, I want to remind us that Paul still remains focused on what his fundamental calling is. He's a minister of the gospel. He is not first and foremost their friend. He is not a social organizer. He is first and foremost a minister of the gospel and stays focused on that call. So if you would turn with me to Romans 1, 8 through 15, where I want to look at Paul as a pastor. Here's what he says: First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because of your faith, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so that I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now first I want to look at this first line. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Do you remember a couple weeks ago when I said, often in commentaries, there's like half of a book written before they even hit the first verse of commentary. And normally the beginning of commentaries focuses on two things. And they're often conjectures, but it focuses on two things. Who was Paul and what was the occasion of the letter? The occasion of the letter matters. And in many letters that Paul wrote, it's pretty obvious what the occasion was. Something bad was happening in the church that compelled Paul to write a letter, rebuking what is bad and fostering what is good. So we see it like in the book of Galatians, the letter to the Galatians, right? There are these Judaizers that have infiltrated the church and they're saying, hey, you gotta keep the Old Testament law. And Paul is just furious, Right? The whole letter has all exclamation points if there were such a thing in the, you know, in the Greek. There isn't, but he is so mad. And that's what compelled him to write the letter. Or the Corinthians, right? We remember the church in Corinth, there is rampant immorality, right? Immorality that they don't even have in Rome, it's so bad. And so Paul is furious and he writes them a letter to address those issues. However... Have you ever noticed that Romans lacks all of that fire? Romans is notoriously difficult to nail down what the occasion is because it doesn't appear that Paul wrote the letter in a state of being exasperated because people were being so bad. In fact, the very, (laughs) he tells them, your faith is proclaimed in all the world. It's a church that's actually doing pretty well. It's a church that is growing in faith. There appears to be a mutual love that is occurring and Paul longs to go see them. Now you have to also remember, Paul has never been to this church. He wants to go see them. We know later he does get to go see them, right? But he hasn't got to see them yet. He's going with at least some occasion. We know a few things. One, he has an offering that he's collecting for the church in Jerusalem. So he says, hey, I'm coming on a fundraising trip. You know, you're in Rome, there's gotta be some mad, you know, mad stacks there, so I need a little bit of it. I gotta take back to Jerusalem. That's one. The other thing is that he does later appear to address issues between Jews and Gentiles. Right? So later in in the book of Romans, you do see all of these conversations about how how does the Old Testament relate to today? Right? Is the covenant still in place for Israel? Now there's conjecture as to why this is. Likely, the church in Rome was began, like most churches all throughout the Roman Empire, as a mix of Jew and Gentiles. But then there was an exile of Jews from Rome. So then it became a Gentile only church. And then the Jews were permitted to return. So then you have people that have just never asked the question, how do we relate this to the Jewish covenants, the covenants with Israel. Because guess what? Everybody was a Gentile. And then all of a sudden, their church is full of a bunch of people that love the Lord Jesus Christ, but also seem to really think that Old Testament thing really matters. But what we see is that Paul lacks all rebuke in when he teaches on this, one. And two, he's building a collection for a predominantly Jewish church in Jerusalem, two. So there probably isn't animus going on. It's not that the Jews and Gentiles in the church can't get along. It's they're asking questions in good faith that Paul can answer. So why am I saying all of this? You might be saying, yeah, i was supposed to ask my question for about 10 minutes now. Paul is addressing a church that is healthy and asking complicated questions, but operating in faith, and love, and their faith is known in all the world. And in this soil, he is able to write the most expansive letter on the nature of Christian doctrine that he ever writes. Think about that for a minute. He is addressing a healthy church. He is addressing a church that is filled with faith, and therefore he is able to expand his teaching even further. What do we see going on in the church? Where do we see vision drift and mission drift again and again? When the church gets caught up in its own internal conflicts and debates, and then we get completely off focus, we get off task, and we end up in perpetual immaturity. I'm reading a book by uh, Miller, I can't remember, it's Paul Miller or Paul Miller's dad. servant leadership book. Jack Miller. Jack Miller led the PCA's kind of mission arm and again and again in his letters. I love his letters. He talks about how the number one reason why people leave the mission field isn't because the people in the mission, missionary, you know, field aren't listening to the gospel. It isn't necessarily because of direct persecution. It's because the team can't get along. Lanny, are you shaking your head? Is that that your, yeah. Yeah, you're nodding. Yeah, I meant that. This way, nod. Yes, nod in his head. What we see, okay, here's the other thing, and I'm not trying to build a critique of the, the, um, the seeker movement, but what we're seeing is the seeker movement build, build itself on speaking to the least mature person in the room perpetually instead of building up maturity in people that want to grow. Now, what it did is it created a bubble of temporary growth, but now we are seeing the sharp decline on the back end as people are becoming increasingly de-churched because it wasn't focused on maturity. Christian maturity and love is the soil out of, out of which we can actually grow and we can actually engage in fruitful ministry. Now, I do think there can be a time where we become so fixated on what we consider to be maturity that we forget the world exists. I'm not exactly sure that is Christian maturity. I think that's just never-ending shoving knowledge in our minds and thinking that qualifies as maturity. But what we see with this church that Paul is writing to is he encourages their faith and then he expands their faith by helping them grow. He encourages them that they are people that have this unified church, this beautiful church, where they are seeking to grow in Christ Jesus, and he fosters that growth even further. Maturity breeds more maturity. And I believe that the Christian church in the United States and in the world in general, but in the United States especially, in our post-seeker era, needs to remember this call that we are called to actually help one another grow in maturity, and that is the place where true evangelism and growth can occur. And we see that in Paul's letter. He's writing to a mature church so we can actually build in maturity. Now let's continue. How does he build relational trust with them? Remember, Paul has not been there yet, right? People have heard about him. It's like uh, some of you have never met Bishop Ken, right? Uh, Imagine you've never met Bishop Ken. You've heard good things about him, and before he arrives, because he's maybe you know got to lead us in a specific way. He has a mission he wants to talk to us about. Before he arrives, he says, "Okay, here's how I can begin a relationship before I even get there." So here's what he does. Look at verse nine. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers I always say, you know, never do a three-point sermon within a three-point sermon, but I'm going to break my own rule today. So let's look at three things real quick. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. Here's a question I have for you. Do you believe it's actually important to tell other Christians you're praying for them and to actually pray for them? I will say I've been really blessed by so many of you in the past couple of weeks when you found out my right arm is getting chopped off to go plant a church in Buena Vista. That's where he's at right now, by the way, leading his church. God, our brother Kyle, we are so excited for him. This is a work of God. i had been praying, Lord, bring us a church. Bring us a church that's already started. That's the church I want to plant. And then he did. And he said, yeah, and we're calling Kyle to go lead it. And so many of you have reached out to me say said, we're so excited for Kyle. And just so you know, I've been praying for you a lot. I say, well, thank you. I need it. I need it. And here's what I'll just tell you. One, those, that, those words mean something to me because I know you actually are praying. I know you're praying. Two, your words are being received. I've never been more excited about our church, by the way, guys. I'm not worried about 2024 I believe God is doing something, and I can't, see, can't wait to see how he unfolds it. Um, your prayers are genuinely being answered, and they genuinely minister to me. So thank you for giving them. And my question for you is, do you do the same for one another? Do you pray for each other and then tell that person you're praying for them? Paul says here, I don't want you to be unaware. I've wanted to come to you for some time. Why does he say that? Why did that get put into Holy Scripture? Because so often we have affection for each other, or maybe we even pray for each other, and we don't tell people. We don't tell them, I actually am praying for you. We don't tell them, you actually mean something to me. You don't tell them, you know, this relationship matters to me, because we're afraid that if we do that, we might come off as manipulative or clingy or needy. But actually, if we want to build trust with each other, it's significant to actually speak forth what God has placed on your heart. So if you have been praying for someone, tell them. Or ask them specifically how you can pray for them and then follow up with them. It means so much to to people, to me. I know it means something to you. That when you ask someone, how can I pray for you? And they tell you that you actually circle back with them at some point. It's a way we communicate value and care to each other. And it's those ways that our Lord Jesus Christ tightens the bonds of peace in the church. And Paul understood his first step towards actually having access to the Roman church's heart is telling them, I'm actually praying for you before I've even met you. Now, the second thing he says is this, and this is significant. Verse 11, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, I long to see you. You know, I wonder if why Christian fellowship and mutual care feels like it's declining is because we've become so busy that we unintentionally communicate. And I I don't think this is ever communicated. You fit into my life when you fit into my schedule. And unintentionally, what we are communicating is that we don't long to see one another. Are there people in your life that know you long to see them? Because all of us long to be seen. All of us want to be seen. All of us want to be valued. All of us want the mask to be taken off so that we can actually be seen both with all of our gifts and with all of our flaws and still be loved. And Paul understood that those kinds of connections only happen when we are actually with one another. Paul shows us the value of being present to one another and truly seeing one another. And here's what I'd also just say, one last piece. Paul had eyes to see people because he had spirit-filled eyes. How often do we not see those around us because we're just operating in the flesh instead of asking the Spirit to remove the scales from our eyes so that we can actually see the wonder that's in front of us. Second, we see that Paul longed to see them. And then finally, Paul, as a good pastor, invites them to minister to him as much as he ministers to them. Look at verse 11. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. You know, Bishop Ken is a really good pastor. He's a great pastor. Um, He listens really well, he ministers to you. Um, He tends to step into things if you ask him to, he's just great. But you know, my relationship with Ken pivoted a few years ago when Ken started saying, Tim, I know you really don't want to serve the diocese in this way. Technically, I have to sit on the board. And normally the board is me being the bad guy saying, we shouldn't give that money. We need to give more money to planters. So I have to be the bad guy a lot on the board. And technically I think I'm the president of the board, but I'm not entirely sure I'm the president of the board. (laughs) I was told via text I'm the president of the board. It's not a glamorous role, but you know why I did it? He just said, Tim, I need you to do this. And I said, Ken, after everything you've given me, I will do the job I want to do the least in the whole world because I love you. And you know, it was interesting. Then Ken started asking me for help on more things over time. And our relationship shifted where he is still able to pastor me, but he's actually able to pastor me more effectively because he allows me to serve him as much as him serving me. And here's the last thing I want you to actually have as the application point. I'm going to go tell Tim I need to serve him in X, Y, and Z. That's not what I'm telling you to do. Please don't. If there are so many of you in this room that are strong in your discipleship, you love Jesus and you love to sit in the seat of the one who brings care and advice. And what I've noticed in so many of you, you are incredibly uncomfortable receiving care from others. This is a pattern I have seen. I've, you know, I have friends and colleagues that are pastors and they can't get anyone to offer to disciple someone. I say, I got people through the woodwork who want to disciple people. If you want to be discipled, reach out to me. I have 10 people waiting to start getting coffee with you and they'll pay for it, okay? But what I've noticed is very often there's a hesitancy to say, I need help. And what we see with Paul here is he recognized that not only if he is going to build pastoral rapport with this congregation, with this church, not only does he come to them with insight and care, he also has to open himself up to be cared for by them. And I think for many of us, that's actually a harder step than the first one. And so is <laughs> the question I would just have for you, is this the spirit pricking you at all in that? to ask for help in some way, to ask for care, because Paul seemed incredibly comfortable doing so. And then finally, let's look at the last point, because I got to wrap up here within like two minutes. Paul understood his primary task is still to proclaim the gospel. Look at verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you but thus far have been prevented. In order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles, I'm under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Look how Paul phrases this, both to you and to both the Greeks and to the barbarians. He recognizes that preaching the gospel is both for the saved and for the lost. He doesn't make a sharp differentiation he doesn't say, I'm gonna go do missionary activities out there, and then I'm gonna be your pastor in here. His job is to proclaim the gospel to God's people and to a lost world. What Paul has is, I think one of the things I just admire about Paul the most, he is absolutely laser focused on what his purpose is. And his purpose is not to be everybody's buddy. His purpose is not to be this, you know, the central hub of fun, at the church, but he is meant to be a minister of the gospel. He, is, he recognizes that his fundamental purpose is to bring forth the beauty and majesty of Christ Jesus to his people. That his fundamental purpose is to show that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the only hope this world has to be made whole. And his purpose is to bring the church into gazing and wondering in this beauty and in this beauty alone. And my question for us, it's a question I've had for a long time. We say that the gospel grounds who we are and directs what we do. But here's a reality that I've noticed. You know, if all the people in this room had to talk about was the Broncos or politics or education or parenting styles, I'd probably still rather have conversations with the people in this room than most anybody else. You're really interesting, fun people, right? I planted a church for interesting and fun people, right? I don't wanna talk about banal things and dumb things, right? But I wonder, because people in this room are interesting and fun and relationally intelligent that we can get wrapped up in conversations that have nothing to do about Jesus for a really long time. Is the central thing that we talk about, is the central thing that we care about, is the central thing that is on our minds and our lips and our hearts the glory of Jesus Christ? Or is this just a really healthy place to raise your kids? Is it a place where you can be a Christian and still have friends? My prayer is that we would refocus as a church on this mystery of the gospel, on this mystery that we are created new in Christ Jesus. And would that be the word that unites us? Would that be the first thing that we wanna talk about with one another? Is that the first thing that we want to share with our neighbors? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for giving us an image of pastoral care in the Apostle Paul. Lord, we thank you for uh, this grace that you've showered upon us in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we pray that you would grow the unity of the church as you grow us in fellowship with one another and fellowship with your Holy Spirit, that we might love one another, serve the world, and glorify your name. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. And now would you stand with me as we recite the word?